Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. Today we are looking at Anguttara Nikaya, Book of Fours, Sutta 45, the Rohitasa Sutta. This is another one of Ajahn Tong's favorites, or one that he often taught. And he wasn't alone, this is... Um, In the meditation tradition, this is a, a, a story that is often told. It's about the end of the world, or we might better phrase it in English, the end of the universe. It doesn't refer to time exactly, but it's referring to the limit. where you can go beyond, going beyond the world. And so at one time, Ekang Samayang Bhagava, the Blessed One was staying in Savati, in Jeta's Grove, in the forest, the forest that was used to belong to Prince Jeta in the monastery erected by Anattapindika. And then an angel named Rohitasa, good name to remember, Rohitasa Devaputo came to the Buddha and asked him, Yatanuko bante na jayati, na jiyati, na miyati, na chavati, na upapajati. Sakanuko so bante gamane na lokasa anto, nyatumba, datumba, papunitumba. These are the kind of questions that angels ask. Angels have high minds. But that means, is it possible, Bhante, and he phrases it a bit differently, not being born Najayati, not going, getting old and dying Najayati, Namiyati, not getting old, not dying, <coughs> not passing away and not being reborn one can find the end, one can go to the end by going one can know the end of the world or see the end of the world or attain the end of the world get to the end of the world and the Buddha said, oh friend not not dying, not getting old, not being born, not getting old, not dying, not passing away and not being reborn. I say it is not possible by going to know or to see or to attain the end of the earth. 
the end of the world. So. And Roy Tessa says, well, it's, it's quite wonderful that you say that because in my past life, and here's the story, in this past life he says, I, my name was Roy Tessa and I was a, a, a seer, a recluse, a, a forest-dwelling sage. And I had great magical powers. I was able to fly through the air. And my speed was that of an arrow shot by a bow. My stride was such that it, in one step I could go from the Eastern Ocean to the Western Ocean, from one side of India to the other. And so possessing such speed and with such a stride, the wish arose in me, I will reach the end of the world by traveling. Decided that he would find the end of the world. Having a lifespan of a hundred years, living for a hundred years, I traveled into space for a hundred years. This is in his mind, though. He wasn't physically running that fast, but his mind was so quick he could fly through the air so quick. I traveled a hundred years, yet I died without having reached the end, the end of the world, the end of the universe, I suppose. And he says, well, and the Buddha says, well, by traveling you can't get there. You can't, you can't travel so far as to get away from the world. But I say that without having reached the end of the world, there's no making an end to suffering. So this is the background story to our teaching tonight. To understand this, we have to first understand what, the, what is meant by the word world. Because by world, we think of it as the earth, this round globe that we dwell on. But that's not how it was understood in, by, by the Buddha or it's not how the world the word was used in the time of the Buddha it seems so it means more like the universe there are three worlds and these are useful for meditators to understand as well to help us get the right framework the first one is Akasa Loka so Loka means world Akasa means space it's the world of space. There is a certain amount of space all around us, right? In Buddhism, there's a sense that that, that space is not finite. Or perhaps there's just no sense that it is finite. It's probably not even, not even one of those things we, should, we would even consider to think about. But nonetheless, it exists. We have this world of space. Everywhere you look, there's space. Right. Space in between one room and the next, one house and the next, one country and the next, one earth, one world and the next, one planet and the next. There's lots of space. The second world is called Sattaloka, which is the world of beings. 
So we have the human world, we have the animal world, and these worlds are not places. These worlds are like spheres of existence. So when you're born a human, you're in what's called the human world, because you see things and you experience things as a human. But all, anim all beings put together, animals, humans, angels, hell beings, gods, they're all, they're all make up a world or a universe or, or they themselves make up a sphere that you could call the universe the totality of everything is, is the sum of all beings because without any being what would you have? you would have sights that aren't seen sounds that aren't heard everything that makes up the universe would to say that it existed would be somewhat meaningless if there was no experience to be had and from a Buddhist point of view obviously modern science gen generally thinks different but from a spiritual point of view it would be meaningless if there was a universe without being so that's considered the world the world in one sense it's this physical world space and, but another way of looking at it is from the point of view of experiences people beings well, the second one is not experience, the second one is beings, but the third one is called Sankara Loka. And Sankara Loka is experiences. The Sankaras are the five aggregates Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana. Everything that actually arises in your experience. When you see something, when you hear, smell, taste, feel, think, all of this is Sankara. And so the Buddha says, the Buddha is, is mixing these because Rohitasa was trying to get to the end of the world by running, by flying. It's an interesting thing to do, probably doesn't have much of a cognate in modern society. We don't tend to try and find the end of the, the world as a, as a mundane or even spiritual practice today. But it's interesting because what do we do instead? You know, what, what do we strive for? Because it puts into context sort of the, the Buddhist path. Most of the things we strive for are meaningless. Suppose we strive to be rich, famous, powerful, happy. We strive for these things. And we get them. Usually we don't, but suppose we do. We get rich, we get famous, we get powerful, we even get happy. Have everything we want. But because it's all circumscribed by the world, by the universe, and that universe is made up of impermanent phenomena, none of that lasts, even our happiness. You can live a very happy and fulfilling life. But when it's over, or even before it's over, all of that gets washed away. And so we don't try to find the end of the world. In fact, Rohitasa had the right idea. 
he went beyond the ordinary thinking. He had probably experienced such psychic potency or spiritual power that he realized that he saw things a bit more more broadly than most of us and realized that all this striving, all this running around was inconsequential. He had, he had a taste of the power that he could possibly wield and he started to wonder whether there was an, any way to go beyond all of this, to not get, not be caught up in impermanence, uncertainty, instability, and the inevitable fall from whatever height we attain. And to find a way beyond. But he thought of the he still thought of the world in the wrong way. And this is one of the most important things a beginner meditator has to learn is to see the world in the right way. Instead of seeing the world from the point of view of space or even beings, you see the world from the point of view of sankhara. And so as Buddhist meditators we get a sense of what the Buddha's going to say here. We know we know where he's going with this. He says, "Ah, you you can't you can't find the end of the world world by traveling." You keep going and there's more space. And you die before you get to the end of the world. And then he says, and this is a famous quote, one that Lumpo Chorok, this monk here, used to teach. He used to give the Pali, so I'm going to give the Pali. Imasamingyeva bhyama matte tadevare sasanyimhi samanake Lokancha panya pemi, loka sumudayancha, loka nirodancha, loka nirodagami nincha patipadam. Imasamingyeva bayamamate kalevare, sasanimhi samanake. Friend, in this very kalevara, kalevara is. Uh, a body, corpse, this carcass. It's a, it's a word that's not used normally for a living body, but it's, uh, it's used to describe a corpse. So in this rotting corpse that we have hung around our neck, this body that we're stuck with smells and festers and slowly ages and rots and dies. Biyama mate. Biyama. Biyama means uh, a fathom. It's a fathom. Fathom is six feet, right? This body is six feet. Well, a fathom is from one arm, one end of your fingertips to the other, I think. So that's as far as it goes. No matter where you put your arms, the most you get is six feet. And from the top of your well, not six feet, but the most you get is a, a fathom, your fathom. And uh, from head, which is also the same as from your top of your head to the bottom of your feet. In this six-foot frame, basically, in this fathom, fathom-length corpse, Sasanimhi that has perception, samanake and mind. Lokan chapanya pimi. 
I say, I point out the world. I, I, call, I make known the world. I point out the world's goodness. I say that the world is here. The world is in you. <coughs> he makes known Sankara Loka in this teaching. That's what he's doing here. He says in this, in this body and mind is basically what he's saying. This fathom width, fathom length corpse. Together with the mind, together with perception or the the mental faculties. That's where you find the world. That's where you find the origin of the world, Loka Samudaya. That's where you find the cessation of the world, Loka Nirodha. And that's where you find the path of practice leading to the cessation of the world. This sounds familiar, it's actually another another formation of the Four Noble Truths. Because the world is synonymous with the truth of suffering. Because suffering doesn't mean painful. Suffering means not happiness. Dukkha, not sukha. You can't be happy in the world. It's basically, I mean, the ultimate conclusion that one comes to, to is that you, you can't find perfect satisfaction in the world. Now, most people are fine to live with that. I mean, this, this kind of teaching is not all that appealing to most people. You have to be quite high-minded, like Rohitasa, to really, un really feel the Four Noble Truths. You have to be someone who's done quite a bit of meditation. Because the more you meditate, the more you see that, really, this isn't where happiness is. There's no peace here. There's just more and more stress, and you see more and more stress. More, as your mind becomes more refined, you see the finer and finer stresses that you're dealing with, coping with, fighting with, and you start to let them go. So it's an important point. I mean, for Buddhist meditators, this should already be fairly evident. But if it wasn't, this is where the path is. It's, it's inside of yourself. There's a story that I think Mahasi Sayada tells somewhere in the commentaries. Three monks. Three monks were spending the rains together. And I think they spent like five days alone and then they would come together and, and recite and chant the Buddha's teaching. Sort of a tradition to spend five days or maybe it was 15 days. And so when they came together, they asked each other, you know, how did you, how did you spend the time? And the first one says, well, I did quite well, actually. My mind never left the monastery. So the whole, this whole time when we've been practicing, my, my thoughts never turned to anything outside of the monastery. I was able to settle my mind. And the other one, the second, the other said, oh, that's good. The second one said, well, I... I actually did better than that. I was able, through the whole time I was practicing, my mind never left my room. And they said, oh, that, that's quite focused. And uh, they said, well, what, about the th what about you? And the third one says, well, I did quite well. The whole time we were practicing, my mind never left my body. 
And before you go trying this, you know, the point is that this is, this is more the result of the practice. This isn't something you should force. You can't force your mind not to think about things, but it's a sign of attainment. Like for an arahant who sees seeing as seeing, hearing as hearing, smelling as smelling, tasting as tasting. The life of an arahant is quite exceptional. They're able to, I mean, I think you'd have to say they can think about things far away. There's no question about that. But they can also simply be aware of things as seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thinking. There's no distraction. Wherever they wish to uh, direct their mind, they direct their mind. But what's interesting in, uh, about that and for, for our teaching tonight is uh, how that's, that's a description of the world. What, what, what he's talking about there is the world. His world is only, or he, was, he came to the, the, the understanding that that's where the world ends. It ends at the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the heart. That's all that there is. His world was just the senses, which is really all there is. You know, when you see someone, you don't—it's not them you see; it's light touching your eye. It's kind of like being in a prison with a window with six windows, and you can never leave those. You can never leave the prison. You can just look out the six windows. So we've got the eye window, the ear window. But someone might come up to the window, and all you can do is look out. You never actually leave. Our body is like a prison. Our being is like a prison. You can never leave behind the being. Nor can we prevent people from coming to the window, prevent the things that we see or hear, smell, or taste, or feel, or think. So, anyway, I thought that was an interesting teaching. We find the beginning of the, the the origin of the world, the end of the world, and the path, all within this body. Our path of practice is, is inside of our own experience, our own body and mind. If nothing else, it's a reminder of the importance of meditation, the primacy of meditation the primacy of the introspection into your own being you know, because so much of our lives is spent thinking about other people, other things, things far away the world, what's going on in the world trying to fix the world, save the world when the world is all, all in here it's right here inside of ourselves so that's the teaching for tonight, a reminder to find the end of the world. Like this little guy, he's lost in the world.
So, questions? Robin's here again tonight. She will be gone. She'll be gone tomorrow. She's going to pick up her microphone. This is my first question and time on the site, though I have been aware of Yuta Damo for two years now. Thank you for your guidance. Now onward to my question. I had a severe bout of turmoil, summer 2015, when I discovered your channel. I meditated for a while and relieved my insomnia and anxiety, but several months ago I finally resumed my meditation practice and just September 1st, 2016, I began Vipassana meditation. Upon restarting my practice, my sleep quality shattered, and from that point onward, I had insomnia, until now, since May 2016. I'm not experiencing any potent or explicit or perceptible upheaval, yet my insomnia persists. Perhaps it is my upheaval now? So, perhaps I'm going to stop my you there, because okay. he says it's poorly structured and I agree it is poorly structured and I'm sorry but you're going to have to restructure it. Give us a simple question, um, appreciate the backstory but it's probably not necessary. Just tell us what you want to know. What is the question? And we're happy to, I'm happy to answer. I don't know if that person's even still on now but I can't get what he's actually asking. Okay. She, he, it. Okay. Something happened today, and I felt incredibly sad with lots of self-pity. I immediately closed my eyes and started to concentrate on the emotions of sadness, but I couldn't find it, and yet the body feelings were still there. So I just carried on with normal life, and within seconds I totally forgot about being sad. It came a little later, less strong, and although I felt pressure around my eyes and my nose, I couldn't find sadness anywhere in my mind. Am I imagining this? You might be overthinking it. I mean, first you say you felt sad, and then you say you couldn't find the sadness. I mean, the sadness can disappear. So that's maybe what's happening. If by the time you look at it and try to be mindful, you're no longer sad, that's fine. Then you would um, you would focus on the bodily feeling. So you would say feeling, feeling. And eventually you'll get to the point where you're able to recognize, now I'm sad, and you'll say to yourself, sad, sad, when you're actually sad. Um, but you may be overthinking it, looking for something that's right under your nose. That can happen, where you're 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 not realizing that. Oh, I'm actually. But but it's true actually. I mean, sadness isn't mental emotions in general don't last very long. The physical re results last much longer. Take anxiety for example. Anxiety is something that lasts only a moment, but we feel anxious all the time because it's a physical feeling, and that's not anxiety. That's the physical manifestations or results, effects of anxiety. So sadness is certainly the same. The actual sadness is only the beginning. The physical and the eyes and, and everything is, uh, is what lasts. Yeah, it's probably all that you're experiencing. 
but do try when you are sad try to be quick enough to catch it it's good if you're if you're present for it and able to feel the sadness say to yourself sad it helps so there's not such strong bodily effects as well. Would you recommend for a person to live a hedonistic lifestyle for a few years if they want to be a monk, just so they don't feel like they missed out on anything? I don't like this question. There was a monk who did this once. Uh, he's actually a very, a fairly well-known meditation teacher in my tradition. And I talked to him about it, or I read his book about it maybe. He was a meditation teacher for quite a while, and then he disrobed because he wanted to go and, and learn about the world. He'd, he'd ordained from very young. And he went and got married, had kids. And then he'd had enough of that, and he came back and he's a monk again. I mean, just the, the whole the whole setup of the, the idea that of missing. I mean, a person who did who thought like that, I mean, you're, I'm not really judging you, but... but thinking of this person you might become who is a monk and thinking, gee, maybe I should disrobe because I'm, I didn't, you know, I, I'm, I missed that. I didn't experience the full spectrum of, of experience. I would say, you know, the point is that person is missing the point. What they're really missing is the point of the spirit, uh, the point of the Buddha's teaching. Yeah. Um... Is that the, the, there's n you know there can be nothing out there that is truly pleasing. It's not a matter of you don't. I guess the simplest way to answer is you don't have to experience everything to know that everything is suffering. I mean, every every sankara is suffering. It's called um, insight by in uh, inference. You actually there is an inference technically speaking, an inference that goes on. I mean, reality is not made up of experiences in like getting drunk or having sex or what, uh, robbing a bank, I don't know, experiencing everything, right? Um, it's made up of momentary experiences, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, that's all that's real. If you get the Buddha's teaching, and you realize that it, it, it doesn't matter, you know, it's not a matter of what you've experienced and realizing that everything is suffering. The everything is suffering is, is or, or unsatisfying, is based on the building blocks that make up every experience. But I think, I think, you know, even really what strikes me immediately is not that. What strikes me immediately is, is, what you're talking about is is all that is unwholesome. I mean, the, the 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 basic principle of Buddhism is that hedonism is a cause for suffering. That hedonism is bad for you. And so you're saying that there might be some benefit to doing what is bad for you, basically. Right? That um, somehow you you could benefit from unwholesomeness. Which is really, you know, how could I possibly recommend that? Why would I possibly, why would anyone who knew the truth recommend that? 
what good could possibly come from doing what is bad for you? That's really the point. And that's what immediately strikes me. The argument could be made, and I guess this monk was quite a well-known meditation teacher. I don't know whether he regrets what he did or not, but um, is that uh, you have to see that it's suffering for yourself. But that's a complete, in my mind, a complete misunderstanding of the Buddhist teaching. And that gets into this idea of the world, of the Sankara Loka, that the world is only made up of Sankaras. You don't have to go around experience every, experiencing everything. Uh, insight by inference means once you see that the world is made up of very simple building blocks, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, all you have to do, in fact, all you have to experience is one single phenomenon because you start to see that that's all there is, is, is individual experiences. All you have to do is see one single experience as impermanent or suffering or non-self. Impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable. And if you see that clearly enough, that is the moment when your mind lets go. The next moment is an experience of Nibbana, or the next, I think it's two or three moments actually. And then there's the experience of Nibbana. So absolutely not. To, to wrap it up short absolutely not when that sort of thinking comes up you think of that's Mara this is Mara trying to trick me absolutely that's Mara and you, you try and note it wanting, wanting it's a way of it's really a good way of convincing yourself that you can go and do terrible things <laughs> or you know at least unwholesome things so people do on New Year's Eve. They, yeah. they do all their bad things on New Year's Eve and then start New Year's Or before they get married, day right? With all their New Year's resolutions. Yeah. Get all the bad stuff done it's first. Like in, in Islam, I think they have this Ramadan where they fast and then they pig out. In yeah. Judaism, we have the Yom Kippur where we fast during the day. And they fast during the day and then uh, at night they eat. Or you've got Mardi Gras, isn't that what Mardi Gras is about? You've got Lent and then you've got Mardi Gras? Yeah, ma well, Fat Tuesday comes before Lent. Lent. So right before Lent you pig out. You you pig out, you eat all the fat in you your house because there, there wasn't allowed, you weren't allowed to eat fat during Lent in mm -hmm. olden times, I guess. Yeah. So. Certainly not the Buddhist way. It's, it's, you're, you're stuck in the law of karma. Karma really says that it's bad for you. There's no, there's no good that comes from doing bad things. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes, doing bad things teaches you that they're bad. I mean, that's clear enough. But that's very conventional. In a conventional sense, yes, it'll shock you. You do it enough and you'll say, well, i got to get over this, hopefully. But the only reason you'll say that we have to point out the only reason you'll say gee I've got to get over this is because you have some goodness in you it's nothing to do with the bad things you're doing but you do enough badness the good in you kicks in and says gee if you don't have that goodness in you hedonism won't it's not going to help you so that goodness is in you you don't need to go do the the, the bad things you just need to apply the goodness um, because that that knowledge oh this is bad for you it's not, it's not going to enlighten you it's not enlightening it's just enough to make you stop. So, if you don't start in the first place, well, you're much better off.
If thoughts and wanting are not self, does that mean that the wanting to meditate and such are not self? So all experiences are kind of random? Can you explain the relationship between thoughts and experience? Do past experiences influence thoughts? How does memory work? Thank you for your teachings. That's a lot of questions in one question. A few anyway. Okay, well the whole thing about non-self, not-self, no-self, whatever you want to call it. Non-self is a a description of meditation practice. You have to get it through your interior, let it penetrate that um, the world from a point of view of Buddhism is experience. We're talking about experiences, we're not talking about philosophy or what exists or is this that or is that this. We're asking ourselves, what is experience? What are the characteristics of experience? So the characteristics of experience that are salient, that are important, that are what we need to learn, are that they're unstable, unpredictable, that they're unsatisfying, and that they're uncontrollable. They're not something you can turn on, turn off, and moreover, more importantly, by non-self means they're not worth clinging to as me, as mine, as I. Because they're, they're, not, they're not worth your time. That's all. There's no f- big philosophy here. There is a self, there isn't a self. That's, I, in my mind, totally out of the realm of, of what's important or, or what the Buddha was, was focusing his teachings on. So you're you know, rationalize or logic, making logic and saying, therefore, all experiences are kind of random. That's nothing to do with non-self. You know, non-self just means you can't control. It doesn't mean that things are random. Random is just a view. It's a theory. It's one the Buddha didn't subscribe to. Absolutely not. Things go according to causes and effects. Now, that doesn't say anything about is the world deterministic or is there free will or whatever. It just points out what is clearly observed. When you observe reality, you will see that things are dependent on causes and conditions. Entirely? Not entirely? I don't know if that's really important, but there are relationships, very complex relationships between things. Mainly, if chiefly, if you do bad, bad things come. If you do good, good things come. That's really the only important thing to understand about um, cause and effect. And so that inclines you to do good things, and you start to see the bad things you're doing as causing you suffering, and so you let go of them. Clinging, mostly. Clinging to things that can't satisfy you. Why? Because they're unstable. They're unsatisfying. And they're uncontrollable. So that's about all I got to say about that part. Uh, The relationship between thought and experience. Well, thought is a kind of experience. We have thoughts, and those are experiences. Do past experiences influence thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, if you didn't hadn't experienced uh, what New Year's Eve, you wouldn't have thoughts of New Year's Eve. If you hadn't experienced pizza, you wouldn't have thoughts of pizza. If you hadn't have thought, if you hadn't practiced meditation, you wouldn't have thoughts of meditation. So it definitely, and moreover, your thoughts are colored by your emotions. So if you're an angry person, you will see something and you'll think, oh, that's terrible, because you're generally a a negative sort of individual, pessimist. If you're an optimist, you'll always say, oh, that's nice, oh, that's really good. And if you're a realist, you'll say, oh, that's that. 
How are we doing? Where are we? Uh, how does memory work? I haven't got a clue. Just work. Thank you for your teachings. You're welcome. How does memory work? Well, there's. I guess. I guess you, as, uh, I could at least say that there's a, definitely a power to experience, and it sort of hammers. It affects the universe. There's a, there's a resonation, and uh, that creates echoes, and echoes are memories, something like that. But it's too complex for my pitiful brain to understand. About the four paths, I understand that to be considered a sotavana, one has to see nibbana once. Does that mean that to become a sakadagami, one has to see nibbana twice? And then a third time for anagami and a fourth time for arahant? Or it isn't that simple? Mm -hmm. I should have, you know, this is a good, qu good follow-up question from what we were talking about last night, I think. It is a very good question. Um, Okay, so here's the thing. I'm going to go a little ways out on a limb and express the understanding that, which I think is very much, you know, it's definitely um, supported. It's not really going out on a limb. Sotapanna is a... Sotapanna is a absolute lo landmark. You know, there's definitely a shift between a ordinary individual in a sotapanna because they've seen nibbana so there's a cat there's a categorical difference a sakadagami is not category not a not a, a, a categorical difference there is a category but it's somewhat vague and why that's wh how that relates is what that means is a sotapanna is that your the answer is no a sotapanna experiences nibbana again and again and again until they eventually get to the point where you can say that person is a sakadagami. That's all. That person continues to see Nibbana again and again and again until they get to the point where they've completely rooted out greed and anger or a desire for sensual pleasures and aversion. And then they're an anagami. Now that's that's a more of a categorical difference because there's none left. There's no a sakadagami just has weakened sensual uh, desire and aversion but a sakadagami has completely rooted them out but they've done it by repeatedly seeing Nibbana and so each time you see it it, it, it resonates with you and it creates a, it becomes more a part of who you are the freedom and so you let go more and more but an anagami gets to the point where they've uh, has gotten to the point where they've completely let go of sensual desire and aversion an arahant there's another you know, real landmark, of course, because they've done away with delusion. All greed, all anger, all delusion. They've done away with it. They have no ignorance, no misunderstandings. Not about cause and effect, anyway. They can still be ignorant about things like what is the capital of Australia, or how many quarts in a liter. How many quarts in a liter? The conversion? <laughs> How many quarts in a gallon, I guess you'd say? That would be better. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's something. Now, so we so this is why we distinguish between Magga Jitta and Palajitta. Magga is the path. So we're talking about the Eightfold Noble Path. That's one moment. So Sotapanna experiences one moment, Magga. The next moment, they're still in Nibbana, but it's called Pala, fruit. 
So path and fruition, you'll often hear and you'll read about this in the text. There's path and then there's fruition. The fruit can last for up to seven days. You know, meditators will do it for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour, seven hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, seven days. Uh, but that's all fruit. And then they, they can go back into it. But it's always called pala, fruition, until they get to that landmark that's either artificial or, or real. But it's that, that moment where you can say that person is now a sakitagami. So that we call magajitta, again, the second magajitta. And then anagami is the third magajitta. And arahant is the fourth magajitta. So there are only four magajittas for each each being. You can only experience Magajitta four times, but it's just a name. It's in quality, it's the same as Palajitta. It's just the experience of Nibbana, but it's distinguished, artificially distinguished, as being that that mind, which destroys the defilements for that path, or that that uh, enlightenment, that stage of enlightenment. Hopefully, that clears that up a bit. Will you ever remake the meditation video series you created, Bhante? Is it that bad? If it's that bad, I'll think about it. Tell me it's horrible and I'll think about it. It's not the greatest, is it? Not many years ago. Good quality camera, though. That's what the book was for, the book that was meant to address some of the issues in the videos. What balance of study and practice do you recommend? Definitely way more study, uh, way more practice. You wouldn't worry about study too much. I mean, study is the kind of thing you'll know when you should study and quickly go back to practice. I mean, if you, Mahasi Sayadaw, I think, says it like this, if you've got a teacher, don't worry too much about studying. If you don't have a teacher, then you probably have to study a lot. That's the point. So that might be a good um, what, uh, what's the word? defining character quality. What's the word? thing that you take into consideration is whether you have a teacher or how much of a teacher you have. If you have a teacher who's with you every day, you don't need to study much at all, if at all. Like meditators here, we don't allow them to study. They can read my booklet if they want. Um, that's because they've got a teacher. Now, if you don't have a teacher at all, you really have to, Mahasi Sayada said, you really have to study all of the Buddhist teachings. Read the whole Tipitaka. They don't have a teacher at all. Maybe not that much, but you should study quite a bit. Bhante, I am wondering how hard I should push myself at the practice. I often have a lot of time on my hands, especially during the weekends, where I could meditate pretty much all day long, along with keeping the eight precepts. But I find that also causes a lot of stress. Is that stress a good thing? How much is too much? See, if you're not actually meditating, meditating is not useful. I guess is the point. So 
if the question you know the question as to whether it's possible to do too much practice well not if you're actually meditating but the problem is you sit for an hour or you sit for half an hour how much of that is actually meditation is the question if very little of it is meditation you'll drive yourself crazy if you do too much of it because you're doing too much of nothing too much of, of forcing yourself to sit still I guess that's really where how you have to judge it what is the quality of your meditation until the quality of your meditation improves you probably don't want to increase the time that you meditate I think that's an important point so you'll get a sense based on your stress levels if your meditation just causes you intense amounts of stress I mean some stress is fine it's good to deal with it and learn about it and eventually it'll actually help your meditation if you can learn to deal with it but when you stress yourself too much you can just end up driving yourself crazy or turning yourself off of meditation you, you actually end up hating meditation right? because you're cultivating such aversion to sitting still when you're not actually meditating if you were mindful if you were meditating the whole time you're actually meditating if you're actually meditating the whole time you're meditating well of course stress wouldn't arise that's the question. If there's lots and lots of stress, at some point you have to say, mm, maybe I have to improve the quality of my meditation, so I'm not stressing out so much. I don't have so much aversion to it. What did what do Buddhists think about Lord Sri Krishna and Sirmati? I'm sorry, Sirmati Radha Ran? Do you believe Buddha was an incarnation of Krishna? No. We don't think about Krishna. We don't call him Lord either. And Srimati Radha Rani, I've never heard that name. Mm. Krishna is um Krishna is a later god, right? Krishna's not even in the Vedas. And then someone will say, Oh, of course he is, but the name Krishna doesn't come until later, I believe. It's big in the Mahabharata, but the Mahabharata is, what is it? It's a, it's a later story. Of course, don't tell the Hare Krishnas that. It's a different religion. But see, that's the thing with, that's the thing with, in, with Hinduism, and, and really Hinduism. The word Hinduism is appropriate in this instance. And I don't like to use the word Hinduism because it's kind of silly, because you're just talking about lots and lots of different teachings all mishmashed together, but that's the thing, is they really mishmashed it together. It's kind of like what the Chinese did with Buddhism. I was just arguing with Ivan when he was here. I finally I finally told him that I wrote this article criticizing Lotus Sutra, and I think I really devastated him. <laughs> he was he was because he, he chants the Lotus Sutra every day or parts of the Lotus Sutra every day. It's really important to him. It, it didn't. It didn't harm our friendship, but uh, I had to get that off my chest. I couldn't, you know, keep it. And if we're going to be friends, we have to be open. And uh, so I explained to him what the article said, and and I, I'd be open to a an interpretation that invalidated it. Anyway, my point was, um, and I explained, and he said this was true. He said they they did bring together all these different teachings, which were conflicting. You know, there were teachings. These in India, these guys were arguing with each other. One person said this, another person said this, and it was in order to refute the other person's arguments. But in in China, they they found all these teachings and Yu Yi and and all these other guys. 
um, they had to make some sense of it. And so they tried putting it all together in, in terms of a lizard, a, to make a religion. And they used the Lotus Sutra to do that. And that's how the Lotus Sutra became very famous in, in my mind, all over, because anywhere, any practice you wanted could be called Buddhism because it was called skillful means. Because the Buddha, of course, taught, as they say, taught different ways for different people. So you found what you found is in Japan, you had uh, uh, a group of uh, one group of people uh, claiming that their uh, luxurious, affluent lifestyles was a skillful means. You know, there's there's a way that that can be a, a practice that leads to enlightenment. And at the same time, you've got these ascetics living in the same, in Japan at the same time, you've got these ascetics living off in the forest, saying that, you know, the Lotus Sutra tells them that there's their teachings or their practice is good. Um, so the point being, I mean, it's not, it's not wrong to say that there are, are different ways of living as a Buddhist, but at some point it breaks down where you, you know, it just becomes an excuse to live however you want or to do whatever you want and it, it um, you know, becomes a teaching of nothing and, and that's where you get really crazy teachings, you know, or, well, in, from my point of view, teachings that are no longer about saving yourself, they're about having God save you, you know, the, another Buddha save you or something. So how that relates to, to Hinduism is um, they did the same thing. They've tried to bring every everyone, fit everything in, when what you've most likely got is a lot of indigenous religions, like take Shiva, for example. Shiva is the god of fertility, which is all over the world. In any primer, in a, any, um, what's the word, what's the word, um, tribal culture, primitive culture, You'll always find a fertility, you know, gods of fertility. They they wish for, even in Buddhism now you have it. You see the the vestiges of this early desire, you know, to appease the gods. Even now they try to appease the Buddha. They go under the Bodhi tree and they wish for, for kids. Um, but that was a big thing in ancient times, and so they would have these phallic phalluses or women with with large breasts or women with oversized, you know, clay statues of women with oversized sexual organs or ma men with huge sexual organs, that kind of thing. And so you, out of this comes Shiva. And what's he represented by? A, a, a phallus, a linga. doesn't look like a linga in modern times. It's just a big dome but or a pillar or whatever. But originally the Shiva linga was a phallic symbol. And it's specifically a phallus. So... But then they fit Shiva in there, and now I'm told that Shiva's actually Rudra. Rudra's in the in the Vedas, so they say, well, that's Shiva, but it's not really. I mean, it's just what they say. I could say he's Buddha, but um, this is what happens when you have many, many different teachers teaching many different things, and someone later comes along and tries to fit it together. It's what they did with Christianity and Judaism. They tried to fit it together, put everything in its place, because. You can't have a, one set of gods over here. You can't allow them to have their set of gods. And we've got our set of gods, right? So the Judeo-Christian religions tried to fit everything in in one god. And Well, we have the same god, but they just don't understand God. And Hinduism did this as well. It's all the same. You know, Krishna is on top. Well, Brahma is on top. No, Krishna is on top or whatever. Indra, where is he? Well, he's down there somewhere. 
and you fit everything together and then someone comes along and says well actually it's all the same God you've just got all these different incarnations something like that I'm, I haven't kept up with it but um, Krishna has all sorts of incarnations and and so then they have Buddhism and they say well Buddha is just another incarnation of, of Krishna but there's no sense to it and there's no historical validity to it it's a modern uh, thing it's a modern belief there's no ancient text that says yes there will come this guy and he'll call himself Buddha and he is just another incarnation of me it's a, totally after the fact so there's no reason to believe that it has any validity spiritually or otherwise because um, that's all it is it's a brazen attempt at fitting everything in together under your religion it's actually quite insulting to if we were the sort to be insulted to be considered to have your the leader of your religion be told that he's just another incarnation of some useless god up in heaven so that's all I have to say about that and I don't answer questions like that because they have nothing to do with Buddhism it's probably a great way to grow your religion though when you're just convincing everyone that it's all the same it certainly is I mean look at how, how successful it is and the other thing is you, you're also dealing with people, with ordinary people who don't have deep knowledge of religion, and, but they have a feeling of needing to get along. You know, this is an ancient, you know, primal urge to, to, to get along, to fit into society. So if you have this family over here believing in this God and this family, if you don't find a way to, to make it all work together, how can you live together? You know, how can you socialize? Well, I believe in Hanuman. Well, I believe in... Rama. Oh, it's okay. They're, they're friends. Find some common ground and then just yeah. go all the way with it. <laughs> it's all the same. Is it necessary to understand dependent origination to understand Nama Rupa? I read that somewhere. I can't remember where. Okay, well, the stages of knowledge go like this. You're talking about actually the first two stages of knowledge. The first stage of knowledge is just understanding Nama and Rupa. So no, dependent origination is the second stage of knowledge, technically. The first stage of knowledge is just seeing what is. It's like you open the door and you or your refrigerator and you see what, what what's in your fridge. Okay, there's that, there's that. When you sit down to meditate, you start to see. There's the body and the mind. If you read my second booklet on how to meditate, um, you, if you, in the context of your question, I would recommend reading the first two chapters, or maybe it's the second and third chapter. But they talk about the first two stages of knowledge. So after seeing the nature of, or after seeing Nama Rupa, you start to investigate the nature. So this is when you take the things out of the fridge and you smell them. You start to see that Nama and Rupa work together. Sometimes Rupa is the cause, Nama is the effect. Sometimes Nama is the cause, and Rupa is the effect. But uh, they work together in terms of cause and effect. And that's basically what dependent origination says. Dependent origination is just one formation of, of causality. For a perfect understanding, you have to read the Mahapadana, Mahapatana, which has the 24 types of relationships, which is quite complex. But basically, you learn all that in the second stage of knowledge. You start to see how things work together. We have five senses in which to experience. What of the experience of jhanas or even nibbana is this a sixth sense? Ah, but we don't. We have six senses. The sixth sense is the mind. 
So when you think, what sense is that? That's the sixth sense. So jhana, jhana is yes. Um, jhana can be involved with the, the other the other senses. You can enter into jhana based on a sight. So it's um, it can still be the, the five senses. You enter into a jhana based on a flame. Say this is a common even in the West. We know this flame. You focus on a flame. <coughs> you enter into the fire casino and that's using, it's called rupa jhanas. Now rupa jhanas have form as their object. Uh, arupa jhanas have just the mind as their object. Nibbana, the experience of Nibbana is nama. But I talked to a monk about this and I, because I'd heard a quote somewhere, we used to chant nama, rup, nama rupang anichang. Nama rupa is impermanent and so we understand, well nama rupa is impermanent, that makes sense. But then they say Nibbana is Nama, but Nibbana is not impermanent. And it's one of these technical questions. So I asked this Abhidhamma teacher, the abbot of Wat Rampung, we were in India together, I remember this, and I got stuck in a room with him, and not stuck, but I got put in a room with him and another monk, one of the teachers at the university. And the teacher at the university said, this is your chance, Noah, you're, you're in a room, you know, you're here with this, with Ajahn Supanan. You can ask him anything you want, and they said, "Well, there is something I wanted to ask." And so I asked him this: uh, How can nama, how can how can nibbana be nama when nama rupa are both impermanent? And he said, "Well, it is nama, but in and it was a weird sort of answer, but he's, it's kind of a cop out actually." He said, "Nibbana is actually, or no, nama nama. The meaning of nama sometimes is just anything that's not rupa." So Nibbana is Nama because it's not Rupa. And therefore not all Nama is uh, is impermanent. Anyway. Um, but Nibbana is Nama. So there's no there's, that's the sixth sense. It's an experience that is purely meant. Pante, the journeying the journeying in the Sankhara Loka can be thought of as looking for more and more pleasurable sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tastes, etc. Better yet, pati, patichasum. Oh my goodness! Normally, Samapada. I can say this, patichasamapada. He's not asking a question. Itself. He's making a statement and putting a question mark after it. He does this a lot. Sanka, what is your question? Are you asking for verification of your views? Maybe I'll, I read it wrong. No, I'm reading it Kay. too. It's good. But he does this a lot. He, 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 he comments, which is good. You know, he's got good comments. But I don't know what to say to that because it's just a comment. I mean, if you're asking me to verify that, then yeah, I can verify that. Kind of. I mean, that, that would be the journeying. That would be, it's actually called um, Anarya. Um, Anarya Paryesana, the ignoble search. There's Arya Paryesana and Anarya Paryesana. So what you're ta what you're describing is that's how the Buddha labeled it. He called it the search for the the ignoble search. The noble search is the search for that which is undying. But each samupada is is goes both ways. There's the Paticca Samapada in terms of what leads to suffering and there's Paticca Samapada in terms of what 
causes the brings about the cessation of suffering. So kind of maybe confusing things. What makes for a high quality meditation session? The moments. In our tradition it's the moments. How many moments do you have where you're clearly aware of something? When you say to yourself pain and you just see it as pain, that's quality. How much of that you have? Is there an infinite number of possible mental states? Why do you ask? I'm gonna. I'm not sure, but I think that's a question in, in the speculative department. I could give an answer, but I'm not going to. I read that the Buddha talked about a realm of unconscious beings. Why are those beings not considered to be in nibbana? That's a really weird state. Ajahn Tong said they must have a mind. So I'm going to go with him. He said, there must be some mind there. So I, I think I argued with Sanka about this, or, or debated, or he explained it to me. Sanka could probably explain it better. I'm not going to... No. So we're I, not talking again, about people? Again, speculative. No, there's a Brahma Loka where it's only Rupa. Oh, so there's not no people in no comas nana. or anything like that. I don't know. Not interested. You're all caught up, Pante. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for coming. Robin was, and her husband, they, I told them I was going to switch rooms. So they took all the stuff out of one room, and then I told them, ah, I'm not going to switch rooms. <laughs> so they put it all back. But they did much more than that, because it was a mess in there. We just threw everything in there when we came, and I never bothered to. I always thought, oh, I'll, I'll take care of it someday, but, or I won't. But now if, you, now, if you look in there, it's all organized. And you could actually put another meditator in there, potentially. So thank you, Robin. Very welcome, Bande. And Alan. No, what's your husband's name? Andy. Andy. Yeah. My mother's husband is Andy. It's Alan. Andy. Robin and Andy. So, you see, this example... Uh, Take it as an example. We need more people coming to visit. Come visit us. Stay with us. Actually, we don't have that much we need to do. I just found, I just happened to have something big that needed to be done, but most days we don't have much that needs done. Maybe cutting the lawn. Who's cutting our lawn? Do we have a company doing it? You have a, you have a lawn service cutting your lawn. Okay. And it's funny because the lawn has been dead since July. <laughs> It's been a really dry summer here, so uh -huh. it's it's dead. I'm not entirely sure that it well, grows. He's been going in our backyard and mm -hmm. trimming. Oh, okay. So maybe there's some, maybe there's some weeds that are sprouting up in the middle of it. But yes. Have we been paying? I'm we've been paying. Yes, him. Um, yeah. we pay him thirty dollars Canadian each time he comes, which is twice yeah. a month. Mm -hmm. And from what I've heard, that's a reasonable price. Mm -hmm. So sixty dollars a month. Okay. But probably after after September, we can probably let it go mm. because yeah, no. the lawn's I mean, been dead for a long time. I think time. next year we probably shouldn't do that. Next okay. year we should probably, f you know, th there's people who visit enough. Sure. I can just ask someone. I can't exactly ask someone. I can say, hey, our lawn's really tall. Could you do something about it? Sure. <laughs> hint, hint. We're actually allowed to hint. It's one of the few rules where we're allowed to hint. If, 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 there's, if we need a hole dug, we can say, I need a hole dug. 
I can't remember if we can even say here or not or something. Uh, it's really kind of out there, but uh, we can't we can't tell someone directly to cut the lawn or dig a hole, but we can't do the things ourselves. But we can hint because they're somewhat conventional rules that aren't really all that important. I'm sure we can find people to cut the lawns. I mean, now that I have so many Sri Lankan supporters in the area, one of their kids can do it. Now they're happy to do this, happy to help. Got people around here who are happy to help. And Jason, Jason is here today. He'd do it for me. He might be watching. So maybe we can get a lawnmower and put it in the, the shed. In we the don't bed. have a lawnmower? Mm. We don't have a lawnmower. That's the point, huh? No, they're not expensive. Okay, we've got a new question, but it's making my brain hurt, so I might just delete it tomorrow, but I'm not answering it tonight. No speculative questions. Okay, good night, everyone. Good night, Bhante.